mindfulness mode. Your word to yourself is as valuable as your word to other people. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here in Mindfulness Mode. Hey, Mindful Tribe, it's Bruce here again, and I'm excited today. I have a fascinating guest. I can't wait to talk to her about her life, about her story, about what she does. Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things, but we're going to be talking about LGBTQ. We're going to be talking about what it's like to grow up with two dads instead of a dad and a mom the way a lot of us have. And I think that's going to be a fascinating discussion. I'm here today with Chelsea Austin. Chelsea, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am. I got particularly, especially in mindfulness mode today for this. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Chelsea, I'm just going to read a little bit about you. So Mindful Tribe knows a little bit of your background. Chelsea Austin is a writer. She's a speaker and she's an advocate. She's from Malibu, California, raised by two of the most incredible parents, her dads. And Chelsea has taken her story of being raised by two gay men and used it as a platform to spread love, tolerance, and she's advocated for the LGBTQ community since she was in high school. And in 2010, she was voted one of the top 15 LGBT activists in the Los Angeles area. So that must have been pretty incredible. She's uh, got so many uh, things to say about her. She's studied theater and dance, and she's taken that theatrical background and, and created a career out of her experiences and she has this very cool blog called the girl with five names and she has a podcast which i've listened to and i know this is a lot of fun to listen to it's called worthiness warriors so check that out mindful tribe so chelsea what does mindfulness mean to you i find mindfulness to be giving your full attention energy and care to one thing at a time really how I feel about it. So no multitasking for you, Chelsea. I've had to break myself of that habit. I am a I am a recovering multitasker, so to speak. I, uh, I used to love to multitask, but I found that it was hindering me so much more than it was doing good in my work, in my life. And I have really dedicated now myself to doing things with, I say, time, energy, effort, and care, as opposed to getting as much done as I can as quickly as I can. Well, Chelsea, I don't know about you, but I think our world is changing faster than ever. I mean, with the pandemic, with all kinds of other things. I mean, a lot of the ways we look at the world, I mean, there's the whole Black Lives Matter and all of that, which is very, very predominant in the world. And there's how we look at our genders and the genders of other people. And that's certainly your area of expertise. But I recently I recently had a call with someone and I thought, okay, well, I know that for a lot of people, you need to ask, you know, what are your pronouns? What are you comfortable with? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's awkward for me. Like, you know, maybe it's, I asked my 19 year old son and he said, dad, it shouldn't be awkward. How old is this person? And I said, well, she's in her twenties. He says, well, then it's not awkward. You just ask what, what pronouns do you want me to use? And so what, what is this? Why does it seem awkward and how do we kind of get comfortable with this whole thing? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think, you know, even the gap between 19 and 27 is still this, um, it's still new. It's still new for so, 
for so many people. And I think that we have to own that and know that. And when things are uncomfortable or awkward, um, almost leaning into it, I think is the easiest way to overcome that. I mean, even, you know, I, I interview a lot of friends from college of mine. And even at this point, between the time I've left college and now, people have changed their pronouns. And so sometimes you have to ask the people you think that you know you might, would know what their pronouns are, what they, what they are. And so I think it's one of those things that the more we do it, the more we get comfortable and getting comfortable in the uncomfortable has been a challenge and a lesson for me, I think my whole life. But I, I very much, for those that you're asking, if you're asking someone in their 20s, like likely they won't even bat an eye and be oh yep I'm she her that those are my pronouns and I think the best way to overcome that anxiety is to know it is so much better to ask than to stick your foot in your mouth and make a mistake and it can become offensive if you don't use the right pronoun so I think it's more about looking at what is at stake as opposed to oh my gosh I feel so uncomfortable and and taking a deep breath and knowing most people will appreciate the fact that you're asking, that you care enough to ask, that you want to know. And it's about normalizing it. So the more we can do it, the more we'll get used to it. It's like anything else. Just gotta, you gotta learn how to ride the bike. And then once you ride the bike, it becomes pretty simple. Is there any way that we're moving closer to a place where we will all go by the same? As people, we're a human, you know? Like, mm. why is it so important how we see ourselves as far as our gender is concerned. You know, I I don't know that I am the best person to ask that specific question because I've always identified as a woman. I continue to identify as a straight woman. Um, I haven't grappled with a lot of my own gender identity. It's always been very straightforward to me. Um, and so I, I, you know, I talk a little bit of my course. I, I'm putting together a workshop and a course right now that's all about learning how to validate yourself for high achieving people. Mm -hmm. also known as me. Um, I said, make a workshop for what I need to hear. So I yeah. talk a lot about labels and how redefining labels for ourselves is really helpful way to validate. And, and I also talk about how we live in a world where it would be great if we lived in this utopian society where you didn't have to fit into a label or into anything. But I think as a society, we're not ready to let go of that. Even myself, I don't know that I'm ready to let go of that. I, I think, I, and I think that's the beauty also is that we get to identify as all of these amazing different, um, you know, if you're non-binary, if you're a man or a woman, whatever it is that you want to be, I think that's kind of the beauty is that you get to have whatever identity it is that you want to have. And, and there is no way that I found yet to not identify as something. So I, I don't know if the, our world is there yet. I don't know if we ever will be really, but wouldn't it be beautiful if in that utopian idea, whatever it is we decided to identify ourselves as or whether we decided not to identify ourselves, that we could be loving and caring and accepting towards one another. I think that is really the ultimate goal. Oh, I agree. Yeah, just, just respect each other, love each other, and it doesn't really matter what pronouns we go by, you know? Um, well, I want to ask you what it was like growing up with two dads. And, you know, I, I just think it's something that a lot of my listeners will want to know, you know, from you, what that was like. Were you bullied as a result of it? 
So I was certainly bullied, but never because I had two dads. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and Ma- I was born and raised in Malibu and grew up in greater Los Angeles area. I was um, known as the girl with two gay dads. And that was very much almost, I, I use for lack of a better term, I would say my selling point. It was the thing that made, set me apart and made me feel unique. Um And it was something that I wore very much like a badge because I was the girl with two gay dads. And when I walked into any situation, people knew who I was because of that, because it wasn't as common. I was born in 1993 and it I'm also biologically related to both of my parents. So that was something that was very uncommon. My dad, Kevin, is my biological dad and my daddy, Dennis is my biological uncle, meaning his sister donated the egg so that my parents could have me. Um, And so I was very proud of this and very proud of where I came from. And, you know, I it certainly did more to my internal state of mind than it did causing a lot of bullying externally. I was very aware of the fact that um, I'm an example. I'm an example. I was the example for a bunch of different uh, or human rights organizations to say, or LGBTQ organizations to say, here is an example of a girl that was raised by two dads who've always been her dads and she's well adjusted and well spoken. And, and so being that example, on the one hand, I, I lived for it and I thrived off of it. But on the other hand, it was stressful and made me a perfectionist and made me want to do all things the right way because I had in my mind, if I don't do things the right way, then they're going to see me as a reason gay people shouldn't have kids. And I recognize that now that that's also kind of a self-centered view of the world. But as a little kid, that was what I knew. And that was how I felt. That was my place I felt I had in the world. And did you feel well-adjusted yourself? I did. I have to say I was a mature kid. I, I was like a mini adult. So, you know, from the time I was, I'm an, also an only child. I was used to always being around groups of adults and I was well-adjusted, well-spoken, worldly. I've traveled a lot. I felt like I had a handle on, on what it meant to be a human in this world. And I felt like my parents gave me that. They were, they spoke to me like an adult. They loved me unconditionally and they, they, but they never babied me. I was capable of handling situations as they came up and they were, they didn't coddle me. They loved me, but they didn't coddle me. Well, I'm curious, did both of your parents kind of share sort of the maternal, the traditionally maternal roles, the traditionally paternal roles, or did one kind of take on more of a paternal role and one take on more of a maternal role? Definitely. That's always a great question. My my dad, Kevin, um, I, I always like to use their names because for me, I know who dad and daddy are, but people get very confused very quickly. But my dad, Kevin, definitely took on more of the maternal role and he very much... Um, pushed against that for a very long time. He didn't want to be seen as the mom. He said, no, I'm her dad. I'm her dad. But at the end of the day, that nurturer type of person was my dad. He was the stay-at-home parent. He was with me the most most of the time. He took care of me. He disciplined me. Um, and my daddy was, I was very, my daddy Dennis, I was very much a daddy's girl. He spoiled me and he's never said no to me. And he went out and 
and made made money and brought it home. I used to say my daddy, oh, oh, what did I, daddy brings home the bacon, dad cooks it, and I eat it. <laughs> That's a little girl I came up with that, which is somewhat horrible, but also hysterical. So, yeah. And what do you think it was like for them? Do you think it was a challenge living in a society that was maybe a little bit more traditional while they were playing this role that was more forging ahead of their time? Absolutely. You know, I think my parents are incredible, incredible people. They were very nervous when they decided to have a child, the challenges that I would face as the daughter of two gay men. Um, But... They always told me that they going in, they thought, you know what, 50% of the people are going to have a problem with this. We're going to encounter 50% that's just not going to be okay with who we are and how our family is. And largely, that was not the case. Most people were very open and accepting, and having a child actually helped normalize their relationship for a lot of people. When they, they were incredible parents, they cared for me, and it made it a known quantity. So they faced, they have both faced a lot of challenges as gay men in the world growing up. You know, my daddy was horrifically bullied um, in a suburb outside Chicago. He grew up in Skokie, Illinois, and he was really horrifically bullied in high school. And, and that really inspired him to work hard and, and, you know, make something of himself. And my dad was also bullied growing up. And I know is very grateful for my uncle because my uncle was like traditional all-American guy who really took care of him um, throughout high school when he was being bullied and made him kind of a part of his group so that he didn't have to face quite as much um, ostracization. That's not a word, but he wasn't as ostracized because he had his big brother there. And so they've both faced a lot of challenges in terms of their individual lives as gay men. Um, But for the most part, having me, I think helped them. We always tell this one story. My family has a small, uh, has a vacation home in Washington state up in the San Juan Islands. And there was this man that lived in the town. It's a blue collar working town. Um, you don't see a whole lot of gay people hanging out there. And, um, there's this one man who had made it very clear to friends of my parents that they were not okay with the fact that they're gay. He said, no, no, this is not okay. I do not agree with their lifestyle. And, Then I was born and later, you know, a year or so after I was born, he saw my parents in a coffee shop with me and he went back to those same friends and said, you know, I saw them with her and I think they're actually really good guys. And so I think... I think I kind of helped bridge that gap, bridge that lack of understanding because all of a sudden they're not so different. We're just a family like everybody else. And I think that was helpful for people. Uh, Chelsea, I'm curious about the girl with five names. Why is your Mm -hmm. blog called that? So I have five names. I am, my full name is Chelsea Austin Montgomery Duban Vechter. Um, I have my first and middle name are given to me by my parents. Montgomery is my dad's last name. Duban is my daddy's last name. And Vechter is my husband's last name. So um, I have all of those names wrapped up in there. I've made my brand Chelsea Austin because Chelsea Austin Montgomery Duban Vechter is a mouthful and scares some people away. So I, uh, I operate under Chelsea Austin, but when I married my husband, 
I never thought I was going to want to take my husband's name because Montgomery Duban was so special to me. Um, and then I met him and fell in love and went, you know what? I want your name too. I want all these names wrapped up in my identity. And him being the incredible man he is, he's also taken all three names. So we're both Montgomery Duban Vector. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. How do you how often do you write for your blog? So I I write now, I post once a week. Um, and at the beginning and end of the month, you get two posts per week. I was posting more, but as my brand has been growing and I've been working on selling my book to a publisher and doing all of these other endeavors that I'm working on right now, I've, I've reduced down to once a week so that I can make sure that I'm still delivering good quality and not just turning out content without a real strong understanding of, of our believing in what I'm saying. Sure, that makes sense. Well, let's talk about your book. What's it called? And tell us all about it because it hasn't come out yet. And I'd love to hear a little bit of the peak preview. Absolutely. So I fully understand that when this book is bought by a publisher that the title could change. Um, But currently, the title is Inexplicably Me, A Story of Labels, Worthiness, and Refusing to Be Boxed In. And it is a memoir, I would say, in the Glennon Doyle style, for any of your listeners that know Glennon Doyle, I adore her. Um, But in the style where you have a little bit of the life lessons that are an overarching theme throughout the book, how However, it's really stories from my life that have gotten me to where I am now. So I talk, you'll get the all the dirty details about exactly how my parents had me, um, challenges that I faced with friends in middle school and high school, going through college, leaving college and trying to find my place and my purpose in this world, which is something I think we're all searching for. And um, ultimately, it um, the the end the ha- happy ending of the story is my husband and I uh, getting married. So I really tied all of these stories in my life about identity and how I identify myself, and also how that how, how these stories have affected my self worth, and then knowing that. The outside world has had such an effect on my self-worth, how I access that to keep building my self-worth and self-confidence. Interesting. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm just going to cut in here. Have you ever struggled with being stuck? with feeling like you want to move forward and it just isn't happening. Maybe you are are just feeling really frustrated in your business. Maybe you're feeling lonely and isolated. Maybe you're filled with anxiety. Maybe you're having trouble sleeping. Maybe it's about a habit that you just can't break. You can't lose weight or you're trying to quit smoking and it's just not happening. Well, I coach people just like you and I help you through hypnosis. I'm a certified hypnotist and I would love to have an opportunity to work with you to help you. It's a five session package for most people that have these kinds of issues. Give me a an email. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com, and let's jump on a call and let's talk about what I can do to help you move forward, make changes, and live a better, more contented, happier life. You can do it. So send me an email and let's get started. I have a half 
price offer available because I'm doing a beta launch. I've already worked with some people on this and it has just met with incredible success. So I encourage you to move forward, make a change in your life and make things happen. Now back to the show. Well, I know you studied theater. Tell, tell us what theater has taught you about mindfulness, or maybe mindfulness has taught you about theater. I definitely think it could go both ways. So I grew up as, a, as, an, act, as an actor always. I was doing musicals since I was about seven. And um, it wasn't really until I got into college and started studying the actual art of acting um, that I would say mindfulness really played a role. And you know, you're juggling so many things in college. You want to have a social life, you want to have, you know, do well in your classes. And I went to a liberal arts college, so it was all about I wasn't just focused on theater and dance. I also had to take science and history and math and all those good things. Whether or not I enjoyed them is another <laughs> question. But um I do think that mindfulness in theater is this attention to detail that actors need to have, this attention to I need to be here and focus here and bring all of my energy to where I am right now. And I had trouble with that in college. And I think that's ultimately why I said, you know what, I don't know that I'm going to be an actor. I think there's a better use for my skills. But I've learned over the years how to incorporate that because I think as an actor, if you can sit in your character and sit where you are and let go, like a meditation of everything else that's going around you or, and let it flow through you however it needs to flow through you. But if you can truly be in one space and focus all your attention and energy to where you are, you're going to be the best actor you can be. If you're not in the back of your head going, am I doing horribly right now? Do I look stupid? Are they going to laugh at me? Is my joke going to land? Because when you can let go of those thoughts and truly be mindful and in the moment and just where you are, you're going to be more successful. Chelsea, if you were going and speaking to a group of middle school students, what would your theme be? What kind of message would you want them to take away from your talk? Oh, middle school students, my heart. That is the, I hope that I get to go to speak to many middle school students because I, whoa, babies, middle school was not my time. <laughs> so, you know, I would really say um, about how to access your self-worth and your self-love right now, that no matter what's going on around you or what people say, you get to decide you're worthy and no one else gets to tell you otherwise. So do you go and speak at schools sometimes? I have before, you know, it's with the pandemic and everything coming up, I'm trying to find that new virtual sure. method of making this happen. Um, sure. But I have, you know, I've spoken mostly on LGBTQ subjects. I've talked a lot about my family and about acceptance. Um, and a lot of my work now has been transitioning into talking about that we define our worth idea and what that means and how you access that, especially as a teenager. So I haven't as of late, as often as I would like to, but that is ultimately a big one of my goals is to be speaking in middle schools, high schools, and colleges about uh, self-worth and self-care and an understanding that you don't have to wait till your mid-20s or beyond to start self-help. Right. Well, that's for sure. I think there are so many people that need that message. And, uh, you know, sadly, it's, it's, we're in a world where a lot of people don't appreciate what they can offer to the world. 
it isn't that the truth. I think people are, they, they're so worried about what everyone else is thinking of them that they don't even have time to cultivate their incredible gift that they are as they are to the world. And so I think building that sense of self-esteem, I said, my parents gave me so much of that and so much self-worth and self-confidence that if I could pass on that to another generation, I would be beyond words excited about life. Yeah. Well, let's talk about meditation. Is meditation part of your life? It definitely is. It's something I think meditation and I occasionally have a love-hate relationship. Um, You know, I think it's taken me a while to find my method of meditating. I do certainly do traditional breathing exercises. I've tried Wim Hof breathing exercises. um, And I've done a lot of guided meditations. And lately, something that's really been speaking to me, because I have a hard time sometimes staring at the back of my eyelids, is uh, centering all of my energy and focus around an object. And so instead of trying to just breathe when my mind is already so busy, really trying to bring my attention to something in my hands has been so helpful at just centering myself quickly and efficiently. I, I would love to say that I meditate every single morning. Um, I, I, I often go, I'm so busy. I don't have time to meditate. And that's when my husband goes, that's when you need it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I think I, I, my goal is that I'm meditating daily. Um, but I do often notice myself. I have suffered from panic attacks. And I, was, I worked in real estate before this was my career. And I suffered from panic attacks consistently. And meditation was, and breathing exercises were the only way to pull myself out of that panic mode. And so I, I owe so much to meditation. And, and even though sometimes I go back and forth between meditating every day or taking a big break, you know, I try not to beat myself up about it and know that it's, it's a gift to be able to meditate and to take that time for yourself. And it's showing respect to yourself. And so I do love meditation. And I, I certainly use, I use a ton of guided meditations from the Breathe Meditation app, B-R-E-E-T-H-E. Um, that right. tends to be my go-to. Also, has like nice soundscapes. So I love writing in my journal to like sounds of rain or something like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about Black Lives Matter. What can we all do to help quell racial prejudice? And I don't mean just against black people. I mean, here in Canada, you know, I know that uh, we haven't always treated our... Uh, our native people very well and we haven't treated uh asian people very well we had asian people come in to work on the railroad and we didn't treat them very well at that time i mean we i think a lot of us we like to pretend that oh you know we we're just so respectful to all kinds of people and i certainly want to be as respectful as i can to anybody no matter what their race no matter what their nationality but what can we do to make things better I think listening and learning is the first thing we can do is pick up books that are written by people of color, listen and learn and pay them for their work and pay them for the work that they present to you every day. There's so many easy outlets, even on Instagram where you can learn. Diversify your Instagram feed. That's the first thing I started doing when the when 
the resurgence of Black Lives Matter happened um, earlier last year was diversify your feed, diversify your life, find new ways to make friendships and, and learn and apologize and get comfortable apologizing for sticking your foot in your mouth because mm. it inevitably will happen and inevitably... You know, and and I think a big part of it is also owning the fact that inherently, as white people, we have privilege, and we mm-hmm. have to acknowledge that privilege and learn how to unpack that privilege. And there are so many people that you can look up online: um, Rachel Ricketts, Rachel Cargill. There's, um, you know, um, oh my gosh, um, Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. There's tons of resources if we're just real willing to take the time and look and to start conversations and, and you know, I wouldn't necessarily go to your black friend and say, hey, can you teach me about racism? That would not be how I would go about it. I would say do research that's there. Pay for education from people of color that have provided resources for you to learn. And relative, you know, if you're saying cost is an issue, it can be relatively inexpensive. And there's certainly tons of free information if you can't pay for it. I just think owning the fact that we have privilege, understanding what that privilege is, and listening and learning. This is not our place to get on a soapbox. This is not our place to say, but what about me? But I'm not all white people. I'm not a racist. I I would love to think that I'm not a racist, but inherently I am. And I have done racist things and I have committed racist actions. And I own that and I apologize for that. And I commit to not doing that in the future and to owning it when I do and apologizing again and continuously showing up. That is really what I would say and and just get educated. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know that uh, we've just had Black Lives, uh, what's it called? February is Black Lives oh, yeah. Matter um, Month. Is that Month. what they call it? Black History Month. Mm-hmm. Black History Month, of course. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I've been you know, really actively learning a lot of things through that, as I think most people have, because we see videos up and we, you know, we see things on the news and and things like that. I try to make sure that it's not just during February, but Mm -hmm. that any month of the year, I'm learning about what other people of other nationalities, of other races are experiencing and how they're managing to navigate their way through the world. So it's certainly a challenge, but I agree with you. Education is is the first place to to focus. Absolutely. And I think that level of care, just caring about another p- person and building bridges, understanding that we have so much more in common than we have that separates us. And and I think that was a loose, a loose Michelle Obama quote. I don't want to misappropriate anything. But, um, you know, I... I and, and making a difference in an industry that you understand. I said, I'm not sure how to change the justice system. I'm not sure how to, uh, politics are not my expertise, but what I do know is the dance world and the theater world. And so two friends of mine, my husband and I started a foundation, um, a 501c3 organization called Dance in Color, where we help young dancers of color get scholarships in order to pursue dance in any way that they choose and support them in that and um, help pay for point shoes and dance apparel because dance is not an inexpensive sport um, or art form. And so, you know, I would say really find 
where your heart is and say, I want to make a difference and go there. And so we put together a bunch of artists that understand that world and say, okay, let's support a world that we know how it works. Yeah. And do we find that at dancingcolor.com? You got it. Absolutely. C-O-L-O-R. Yes, exactly. Dancingcolor.com. Okay, and I'm sure we can go there and make a donation if we wish. Is that true? Absolutely. We accept monthly donations or one-time donations via PayPal. It's super simple, really uncomplicated. And if you just want to get on our mailing list, you can also do that on our website. We also offer free education um, for people. We just had a panel discussion that is up on our website and as well as our YouTube channel um, with some very influential Uh, black educators in dance that are true icons in their field and major trailblazers. And to hear them speak was something so phenomenal. So we do offer free education for people that are looking to access it um, or donation optional education, however you want to frame it. Um, Yeah, but it's been a journey and it's been a great learning experience for me also to put myself in the minority in in a majority black space. And I, I'm, grateful for the opportunities to see things from a different perspective. I wouldn't say I understand the another perspective. I wouldn't say I understand a person of color's perspective, but I'm working to understand what it feels like to be, um, you know, one, one white person amongst um, people of color and to start to put myself in positions where I might feel uncomfortable and own that uncomfortability. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, I wanted to talk to you about dance and movement and the mindfulness behind it and how you feel we connect our brain, our thoughts while we're moving. What? How does that all work? It seems as though if we're not moving, that's not a good thing. <laughs> I, you know, I think... St- <laughs> I bet you know um, there is some truth in that. Sitting on the couch all day just isn't isn't a way to win, is it? You know, I have to say, for those of us that are moving at 100 miles an hour, I think the permission to sit and have some stillness is a gift that I would love to give people. But I do think the more you can move and feel and experience, get outside, see the sun when you can. I live in Los Angeles, so I understand that's um, easier for me than it is for some. But, um, you know, I think movement, to get out of your mind and into your body, movement can also teach you so much about what you're thinking and feeling. Um, Dance in particular, one of my, even if you're not a dancer, you can close all the blinds, make sure no one's looking, and to just put on music and feel and let things arise and come up because that's one of my favorite ways to get in touch with my heart is not to have specific choreography, but to just feel where my body needs to go. And oftentimes when I'm feeling scattered or all over the place, even I will shut all my blinds and <laughs> close myself in and, and just take some time to move for myself and, and being mindful we're moving all the time, even if we're still, we're moving. And so to be mindful of where where are my hands, where are my feet, where are my legs, am I making sure my blood is circulating? You know, I think that's something small even that you can do. 
Yeah, I do too. And uh, one of the things I like to do is jump on my mini trampoline and be crazy, like move my arms all over and move, you know, the That's whole thing. Great. And it just it just feels amazing. And there's obviously there must be a reason why it feels amazing because we just need to be doing that kind of thing. And one of the things I started doing uh, a year and a half ago, I guess it was, well, it was about 2019 I started walking every day and I I made a a promise to myself that I would walk outside every day for at least 45 minutes and that grew to an hour and then no matter and here in Canada of course it can be pretty cold and snowy and all that but you learn to love it you know and uh, so anyway it transitioned into something that surprised me because after a while after about 10 or 12 months, I was like, oh, I think I just want to run a bit. And I've never, never wanted to run. I've never been a Like, I just didn't want to run at all. It was not my thing. And then I thought, well, this is strange. I just, it just sort of feels good. And then I started to run more. And uh, so, for, so for the last three months, I've uh, done a one-hour run every single day outside and just absolutely loved it. Whether there's lots of snow, there was snow this morning, um, or not, it just yeah. feels absolutely awesome. That's so incredible. I think there's a real connection there, you know, that we, we just need to get moving and move our bodies. And there's a mindfulness connection, isn't there, Chelsea? Definitely. And I think the way you talk about the trampoline, too, it's approaching things with a sense of like playfulness and childlike wonder. The world is so heavy these days. Everything yeah. is so heavy. And to just be silly and have fun. I said, that's one of the reasons I married my husband, because he is the biggest kid I know. And, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. And he will always when I'm in, you know, major adult mode, getting things done. Things are too hard and too dark and too heavy. And he's like, come on, let's jump around, you know, and he'll get on the sofa and jump around. And, and at first my brain is like, no, no, this is wrong. I need to be working. And then you just kind of let yourself, you let that childlike side take over and just have a little fun and play a little. I think we can all use a little bit of that playfulness. I think that's another part of mindfulness is acknowledging that part in us that wants to play. And he's an accountant, so if he can do it, Always. you know. <laughs> well, I think we all need to laugh more. That's for sure. Definitely. Oh, we love to laugh. That's for sure. I think laughter can do so much, so much good. It can help. It's helped me in times of grief and in times of frustration and and really dark times in my life. Laughter has saved me. It's been my coping mechanism. Chelsea, can you share a little bit about the darkest time in your life? Absolutely. Um, My goodness, (laughs) which one should we pick? Um, (laughs) No, I would say... I would say probably the most challenging time in my... Well, there's two that come to mind. Um, One is my daddy spent... 15 months in a federal prison camp when I was in college, my senior year of college. Oh, wow. And that was a that was a really um, tough time for our family. We were the three musketeers. We were we did everything together. Um, and to have one of us kind of involuntarily taken away was jarring is the nicest way to put it. Um, and I I have to say it was a time when my humor hit new heights because I think humor really was my coping mechanism and our love for each other grew so deep in that time. And it also broadened my mind to and opened my mind 
to know that you don't know what anybody's story is because assumptions, you hear the word prison and automatically people are going to be making assumptions about what happened and who did what. And and you take for granted that what you see in the news, what you see, someone's been arrested for X, Y, and Z, someone's done this, you assume they're the bad guys, but you don't see a whole person. And my daddy is a whole person who is gleeful and joyful and the sweetest guy I know and wouldn't hurt a fly. And it's a very long story for another time, but I'm always happy to share it. It was it was tax fraud was the reason. He went not on behalf of himself, but for a client. He's a CPA. Um, and, you know, to say a little bit about his characters when he came back, the majority of his clients had stayed at his firm waiting for him to return. And wow. he was actually able to get his CPA license back once he returned because this was such a wild circumstance that he went through under such specific circumstances. But, you know, I, that was a really dark time in my life when there were certainly days I didn't want to get out of bed and I walked around with fear of when is the other shoe going to drop always of this bad mm-hmm. thing has happened. That must mean more bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I had to change my mindset and I had to say, no, this is one thing that's happened that's teaching us a lesson. Yet my daddy's here. He's going to come home. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And allowing myself to feel emotions as they came up was my greatest strength. When I needed to cry, I let myself cry. When I needed to crack some inappropriate jokes about my daddy being in prison, I certainly did that too. And I, I think that was my saving grace um, was having a family that supported each other so wholeheartedly. My dad drove four hours there, four hours there and four hours back every weekend for 15 months to visit him in prison and visited for as long as he could on Saturdays and Sundays. And he was the most dedicated person the, the warden said he'd ever seen to a partner. And so to have a family to dedicate yourself like that to the people you love. Um, That's what that really showed me. And that there are always dark and scary times. But the time after that, my daddy came home in, I want to, I can't remember if it's October, November of 2015. And I met my now husband in December of that year. And the brightest times of my life followed. And so, you know, it's, in our, in our family, that feels like a lifetime ago, and it's only been five years, but I think you can learn so much from, from the challenging times, and it's not that, you know, and I used to say to friends in that time, they're like, well, we don't want to bother you with our, like, boy problems because you have so much your problems are so much bigger. And I said, that's not it. Your problems are your problems and my problems are my problems. Mm-hmm. And they're of equal value. They're just different. And so I want to be here for you to support you. And you're here for me to support me. And so I think consistently showing up for the people you love, that's that's the important stuff. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a story. Thanks for sharing that, Chelsea. Of course. As we move forward, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. So here we go. The first question is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Gabby Bernstein. Oh, yeah. Number two, I want to talk about emotions. Tell us how mindfulness has helped you with your emotions, maybe helped you see them differently or deal with your emotions differently. 
Definitely. I think mindfulness has allowed me emotional literacy, has allowed me the time that it's taken to recognize what is this? I feel an emotion. There's something in there. And and has then also given me a place to let me process that. So allowing myself to feel emotions as they come up and not squashing them down for a later date or time. Let's talk about breathing. How is breathing a part of your mindfulness practice? Breathing is huge. As someone that has been short of breath many times in life, there um, a 30-second breath has been something that saved me, inhaling for 10 seconds, holding for 10, and then releasing for 10, and doing that for about five minutes has is simple, but has saved, literally, quite, quite frankly, saved my life when I thought I wasn't going to be able to take another breath. And definitely breathing and remembering to breathe. We hold our breath so much. Whew. Yeah. Don't we? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm looking forward to the release of your book when it comes out, but I want to know if you have any books that you recommend that are somehow related to mindfulness. Definitely. So I talk a lot about, I love Gabby Bernstein, Gabrielle Bernstein. She has some incredible books on, and they're, they, they lend a little bit more spiritual and about manifestation as well, but there's a lot of good stuff in there about mindfulness. Um, and I, uh, her book, um, The Super Attractor, is the one that I was most, um, I, I think I've read it like three times at this point. That book is incredible. And I also, funnily enough, it's not a book, but there's a gentleman named Dr. Chris Lee on Instagram, and he has, uh, he's a coach, but he talks about the neuroscience behind mindfulness and what that does. And he has been someone I've, I follow and, and helps me connect to my mindfulness often. Well, that's interesting. Dr. Chris Lee mm-hmm. on Instagram, you said. Definitely. I will send you his information. He's an incredible oh, person. Yeah. Thanks. I can put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. So as we wrap up the interview, Chelsea, I just want to know if you have any final words of advice for anyone who wants to live a more grounded life, a more relaxing life, a happier life. I would say my biggest question to be, what do you truly want? Do you, I've said, if I could offer someone peace on a stick, would you take it? Or would you decide that you would rather live in chaos? Because some people would truly rather live in chaos. And so I think if you have that inkling to say, I really want to live a more mindful life, I really want to take more time for myself, my one piece of advice would be to remember that your word to yourself is as valuable as your word to other people. And so if you schedule time in your calendar for yourself, even if it's 10 minutes a day to be more mindful, to start there, just remember that it's as valuable to hold that appointment with yourself as it is all of your other appointments that you have throughout the day. Chelsea, thanks so much for being on the show. And I just want to uh, make sure everybody knows your website. So your website is Chelsea Austin, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, Chelsea Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N, ChelseaAustin.com. Okay, what can we expect to find at your website when we go there? So on my website, you'll have um, podcasts you can listen to. My blog is also there. I also have a t-shirt that I've created where the majority of the proceeds go to Dance in Color, the 501c3 organization that I co-founded with my friends. Um, And soon, you should also be able to find a workshop there called 
flipping the script, a journey to self-validation. And so pretty much everything I do lives on that website. And if you want to get in touch with me, that's also there, all my social media. And I look forward to speaking with any of you that come my way. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chelsea. Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for listening, for subscribing, for reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, and thanks to Erica Flint's Cascade Hypnosis Center for being our valued sponsor. Hey, Erica, we really appreciate you, and Erica is a terrific teacher of hypnosis, and I know that because I am a graduate of her program. Now, if you're a healer or a coach or a counselor or someone who just loves helping people, Consider the powerful results that can be achieved with hypnosis. You can become a hypnotist, just like I did. Contact the team over at CascadeHypnosisCenter.com. And if you'd like to work with me and break through some of those mind blocks, maybe lose weight, maybe quit smoking, maybe it's something else, I would be so thrilled to work with you. Don't put it off. Do it right now. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. That's bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. And we will get you on track and we will help you to move toward the goals that you've always wanted to achieve. So now take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.